Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Today, we are going to continue on with this Christmas sermon series that we have been talking about, Christmas on Mission. And some of us are breathing a sigh of relief. Last week, our Christmas passage was from the Gospel of Mark, which, if you are familiar with the Gospel of Mark, there is no Christmas story in the Gospel of Mark. But we use that to leverage this idea. The Gospel of Mark shows us right away Jesus getting to work. And each of the Gospels breaks down to to show Jesus in a different light. And so in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus portrayed as the suffering servant. And so the reason there is no genealogy in the book of Mark, the reason there is no birth story in the book of Mark, is because in ancient times, nobody cared where servants were from. Nobody cared what the bloodline was of a servant. The only thing they cared about was that the servant came, they did their job, and they did it well. And so guess what the Gospel of Mark shows us? that Jesus came, that he had a job to do, and that he did it well. And so we use that to look at, like we're looking at this whole Christmas series, we are called to do the same. We have a job to do, and we must do it well for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that job is the harvest that he has prepared for us. So we looked at that passage from Matthew 9, that God promises us that there is a harvest out in this world. You know, we've got all of the church studies and everything that says, like, oh, people don't want to come to church anymore. You know, people are burnt out on Christians. They don't want to believe. They're, they're past faith. You know, it's, it's a thing of the past. That's not what God promises. God promises us that there is a harvest if we will get out into the fields and reap that harvest. So the question is, are we going to go out into the fields and reap the harvest, or are we going to sit back and wait for the harvest to come to us? Because guess what? I don't know if any of you farm. We have a little garden at our house. I wouldn't call it farming, but we're pretty good at what we do. I I don't get tomatoes by sitting out there and looking at the tomatoes, right? I got to go to the garden and pick the tomatoes. I got to bring in the fruit, right? And so the question is, what are we giving Jesus this Christmas? So much of Christmas, so many churches focus on what Jesus gave to us. But the question is, church, what are we giving Jesus this Christmas? What are we giving to him? And I'm asking, I would, I would present to you that perhaps the gift that Jesus desires most is a Christmas fruit basket. Yes? Yes? Uh, come on now. I know it's a cheesy dad joke, but I'm a dad, so I'm allowed to do it, right? Everybody hates fruit baskets, right? Let's be honest. When you get a fruit basket, it's always like, 
I think the only thing worse, the other option was a, a fruit cake, right? And that's even worse. Does anybody out there like fruit cake? Okay, well, I, I apologize to you. I think it's gross. Um, but we're going to talk about fruit today, specifically fruit for the kingdom of God. Now, fruit is central to the Christian walk. All through Scripture, we see a focus given, an attention given to this concept of our lives equating to fruit, right? But the majority of the sermons that I've heard preached that get preached on this topic deal with what that fruit looks like, right? We all know the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians, right? Now, some of you know, this is a pet peeve of mine, but a lot of times because of the way we set up our churches, right, we have sermon series. And so for a sermon series, it's very convenient when you're talking about the fruit of the Spirit to talk about every fruit of the Spirit. So the first fruit is love. The first next fruit is peace. The next fruit is patience. The next, And you go on down the line and you break them up. The problem is, if you break down the Greek of that passage, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, when he says fruit, we miss this in our English translation because we don't often say fruits, like plural versus fruit singular. But when Paul does it in the Greek, there's a difference. And when he says it, he says the singular fruit of the Spirit. It's a singular fruit, which means when we break it down and say the first fruit is love. No, it's not. The fruit is the Spirit's. And it encompasses, it looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what it looks like. That's a different sermon. That's just, that's just a little, little teaser there. Today, I don't want to talk about what the fruit looks like. Because, as we'll talk about today, we're actually getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I think part of the reason, we've talked about this a lot here at the Gospel House, but part of the reason we like that is because I can look at a list and say, well, the fruit of the Spirit looks like this, and then I turn it into a checklist, right? Well, okay, was I, what, did I have love today? Okay, check. Did I have peace today? Check. Did I have patience? Ugh. All right, I got to work a little harder on that. But as we'll talk about, let's get in the cart before the horse. Because if we do this Christianity thing right, if we disciple with Jesus, if we disciple with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit disciples with us, a lot of this Christianity stuff that we work so hard to do ends up working itself out. We've got Christians all over the world who work so hard to be Christians. And Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy, right? My burden is light. If you are working so hard to be a Christian, can I suggest to you, take a step back and do it different, right? So today, let's talk about fruit differently. Let's talk about what it looks like to bear fruit for the kingdom. Not what that fruit looks like, but what does it take to be fruitful? So, as disciples of Jesus, we must do these three things, or we must focus on these three things. First, we need to bear much fruit. Then, we need to be fruitful. And then finally, 
if we look at the root instead of the fruit, we will find that the fruit's a whole lot easier to produce. So let's jump in. First up, bear much fruit. Disciples of Jesus are called to bear much fruit. And y'all, this is not optional, right? We are not given a choice. Well, do you want to be fruitful or would you rather lock yourself in your room and never talk to anybody? I mean, honestly, I'd rather lock myself in my room and never talk to anybody. But that's not the choice. We have to be fruitful. Jesus says this, John 15 is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. Jesus says this in John 15, verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove that you are a disciple of Jesus? You bear fruit, right? And not just a little either. Because if you're walking in obedience to God, you will bear much fruit, right? Exploding with it. This fruit basket you're providing to Jesus, it's going to be overflowing with fruit. But we've got to be obedient. Fruit is the proof of being a disciple. This is a theme that Jesus hits over and over and over again. You know a tree by its fruit, right? And, and we know this. Apple trees don't make oranges, correct? So if I walk up to a tree and it has oranges on it, that's not an apple tree, correct? Orange trees don't make pears. So if I walk up to a tree and grab a pear, it's not an orange tree. Jesus says, good trees don't produce bad fruit. So if I walk up to a tree and it has bad fruit on it, is it a good tree? The answer is no, right? And vice versa. Bad trees can't produce good fruit. Good trees make good fruit. Bad trees make bad fruit. This is where identifying the fruit is helpful to us. Because if I look at my life, and listen, listen, if I look at my life, right, and say, I don't see good fruit, then I'm plugged into the wrong root, aren't I? And I need to change that. I did not say, if you look at someone else's life and they have bad fruit, correct? My father-in-law told me this week, he told me the last sermon I preached, I said, right, 46 times. And so I switched it. It's, it's it, you know, when, so in public speaking class, they tell you, you know, people use fillers. And so you, lots of people say, um, or, and so mine is right. I say right, because I want to make sure I'm getting feedback and everything. So if you notice today, I just, I, I took his advice. I, I totally fixed it. It's now I'm just saying correct all the time today. But I am very much aware <laughs> every time I say it. So, I'm not going to say right, I'm not going to say right, I'm not going to say right. Okay, but we're not, that's, that's not what we're set to do. Not look at another person's life and judge their fruit. That's not what I'm saying. Look at your life and judge your fruit. 
if your fruit is bad, or if there is no fruit, if your tree is bare, you've got to trace it back and look at what you're plugged into. You've got to trace it back and see if you are plugged into the true vine. We will get there. We're not there yet. But the reality is, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, there will be fruit. Now, I have been a pastor for a while, and as a pastor, I get to hear a lot of ministry pitches, right? So anybody who comes and, you know, missionaries, uh, people who want, you know, to volunteer for positions, they all come and talk about their ministries. And so they talk, and y'all, I have heard a ton of ministry success stories, a ton of ministry success stories, miraculous healings and supernatural words of knowledge and all of this stuff. And my question is always the same. Where are the people? Where are the people? Because y'all, Jesus didn't come to earth to save miracles. Jesus didn't come to earth to save words of knowledge. He came to earth to save people. So if your supernatural ministry is not saving people, my question is, what are you doing? Right? If, if my discipling ministry is just talking to people on campus, but nobody I talk to ever gets plugged into a church body, there's a problem with that. And y'all, that ministry is not fruitful. So what is the fruit? What's the fruit? Because again, we talk about what it looks like. We talk about, you know, the love, joy, peace, patience. Look at all these, look at all this fruit we have. False. What is Jesus coming back to harvest? People, right? So what is the fruit of the kingdom of God? People. You picking up on the theme of the sermon series, right? That's all we've been hitting on. People. Jesus Christ came to earth as an infant. And we love the Christmas story, and I love the Christmas story. But if we don't see the fact that Jesus came to this earth for people, and if we don't let that impact how we live our lives, that my life is now lived on mission for people, the whole Christmas story, you missed it right over your head. You missed the whole point of it. For God so loved the world. God loved the world. Jesus loved the world. And not the globe, right? It's not, not the earth that Jesus is concerned with. I think Jesus is concerned with the earth. Like God made it. God loves the things that he made. But more than that, God loves people. That is his fruit. When Jesus comes back, and Jesus is coming back, when he comes back, he's coming back for people. And when he harvests, he's harvesting people. We need to do everything in our power. I love moves of the Holy Spirit, y'all. I love worship nights. I love testimonies and hearing people whose addictions are broken and all of those things. I love it. But y'all, if those stories aren't attached with a disciple growing deeper in their relationship with Jesus, it's all for nothing. 
I don't give a rip how many addicts you've cured of their addiction. If they are not walking in a relationship with Jesus, it is for nothing. Y'all, I, I, I mean, I, maybe that sounds harsh. I don't, I don't mean that to sound harsh. I want people to be cured of addiction, but I want them to be cured of addiction into a relationship with Jesus, right? Curing addiction, like, look, curing someone of, of born blind of their sight. Like, that's, those are great things, but I'm not interested in restoring sight. I'm interested in saving souls. Jesus is interested in saving souls. So we've got to be about the things that he's about. As disciples, we need to do the things that Jesus did. We need to care about the things that Jesus cared about. And that means that when we talk about bearing fruit, we need to be getting people into relationship with Jesus Christ. Now look, if that means bringing them here and getting them plugged in here at the Gospel House, good. If that means meeting with them one-on-one and growing them in relationship, in a one-on-one relationship just with you, good. If it means inviting them to your small group that meets at your house, you get the idea. However you do it, when we are called to be fruitful, that is the call, to disciple people. And that is... The command. Be fruitful. Nothing's changed. We've talked about this quite often recently. A lot of times there's this dichotomy placed where it's Old Testament God versus New Testament God, right? The New Testament God is the soft and caring one. The old one's kind of the crotchety jerk that nobody really likes, right? He's always wagging his finger. The New Testament God's always, come, snuggle. That's not the case. And we see this in this command. Guys, this command to bear fruit did not start with Jesus. It started all the way back in Genesis. What was God's first command to human beings? What did he say? The very first thing Adam and Eve were made, made humans in the likeness of God, he made them. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, first command ever, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, if there were still middle schoolers in here, they would all giggle, right? Some of the guys are giggling right now in their hearts. It's okay, because we know what be fruitful and multiply means right? Y'all, that's one way, right? Moms and dads, that's one way you can be fruitful and multiply. But can I challenge you on this? Mothers, fathers, your job is not done when that baby is pushed out in the delivery room. We know this, correct? Your job's not done. Yes, be fruitful and multiply the kingdom of earth, but that's not what we're called to do. God's call here is be fruitful and multiply my kingdom. Jesus' call is be fruitful and multiply my kingdom. So parents, if you are not discipling your children, you are not multiplying the kingdom. I don't care how many kids you have. Christian school will not do it for your kids. Christian curriculum, what, like whatever it is, it will not do it for your kids. Shipping your kid off to kids' church, Miss Jackie does a fabulous job with our kids. That is not good enough. 
you as a father, you as a mother, must disciple your children. That's how you have to do it. And that is one way to multiply the kingdom. Because the other way doesn't matter whether you're a mother or a father or not. Right? All through Scripture, all throughout Isaiah, we see these, we see these calls to barren women. Rejoice, O barren women, right? In the book of Isaiah. Rejoice, O barren women, for your children in heaven will be greater. What in the world could that possibly mean? My children in heaven? Disciple. If you don't have children, that gives you, look, I've got children. I've got four kids. My time is spent. I feel like a glorified taxi driver. I need, to, I, need to start a, I need to start an Uber account. And is that what, is that Uber? Is that the car service? I need to start an Uber account and have my kids, you know, ch- I charge them every time I give them rides places. But like, that's, that's the stage of life that I'm in, right? But y'all, if you're not an Uber driver, if you don't have kids that you're carting all over Northwest Ohio, then you've got time to disciple. So when God says rejoice, O barren woman, he's saying, hey, just because you can't have, physically have children, does not mean you can't have children. You need to find somebody and you need to disciple them. You need to find these people and you need to bring along spiritual children. Can I ask you right now, can the Holy Spirit ask you right now, who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? Who is in your life that you are walking with Jesus with? That was a horrible sentence grammatically speaking, but who are you walking with Jesus with? right? There should be at least one person in every single one of our lives, if we are disciples of Jesus, that we are linking arms with and we are walking deeper in relationship with Christ together. At least one person, if not more. Because God's command is be fruitful and multiply. So how do we do that? How do we be fruitful and multiply? One of my favorite verses in the Bible, i I have a color-coded system to how I underline things in my Bible, how I highlight them. Stuff underlined or highlighted in red, if you're friends with me on the YouVersion Bible app, you can check my math because I do it on the YouVersion on my phone. Red means that it relates to the gospel. If it's underlined in red, it's gospel. Uh, Purple, if I do it in purple, that means it has to do with the character of God. If it's in green, that means that it has to do with like worldly things. Lots of times, like I actually underline bad things in green. Like if there's something that somebody does that's worldly and bad, I'll underline it in green, but that's always green. And then there's orange. Orange is my favorite color. So if we ever have like a, you know, know your pastor trivia game, you'll know orange is Pastor Jeremy's favorite color. But I love the color orange. And so when I get a promise from God, or when God gives me a verse, or when there's there's a passage of scripture that is just like, it's a life passage, you know, You, you read it and it's just like, oh man, this is me. I underline it in orange. Some of y'all know this about me, but Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. That is an orange verse for me. There is no greater faith in all of the Bible than that passage from Job. Though he slay me, even if God chooses to kill me, my hope is in him. Whatever he wants to do with my life, even if it's the worst of suffering, I trust him explicitly. I love that. It's underlined in orange. John 15 gets a lot of orange in my Bible. There's so much of that passage that I love. And then there's this verse, Titus 3.14. 
kind of a little obscure book of the Bible. Not a ton of people spend time in the book of Titus, but this is incredible, y'all. Paul says to Titus in Titus 3.14, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. I had to switch translations a little bit. I have become everything I hated. Typically, I hate that when pastors switch translations of Bibles to make a point. I did it here. (laughs) Forgive me. Typically, I preach from the NASB 2020. That's the Bible that, that we have been using. I switched to NASB 95. The meaning is still the same. It does not change. But NASB 95 actually uses the word unfruitful at the very end there. NASB 2020 changes it to unproductive. They mean the same thing. I'm not pulling any wool over anybody's eyes. I assure you, we are theologically good. We're on solid ground. But what's Paul saying to Titus here? He's telling Titus, listen, Titus, my son in Christ, do you want to be fruitful? To which Titus should answer, absolutely I do. And Paul says, then you must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Now, we have been hammering this, right? And, and if you have been here for a significant amount of time, you guys know I've, I've talked about this a ton. This is one of the first things that my father-in-law taught me, right? But what is the most basic definition of ministry? The simplest definition of ministry Ministry responds to need. For the longest time, I always felt bad for stealing that from my father-in-law, but then I read this passage and realized he just stole it from Paul, who just stole it from Jesus. So if we're just stealing from Jesus, we're discipling, right? That's all, that's all discipling is, is just we're just taking what Jesus said and passing it on. Ministry responds to need. Y'all, I get, I get kind of irked sometimes at the church. And, and it's on you too. It's not just on the leaders of the church. But lots of times, you know, we get this idea of like ministers, right? Like, oh, look at pastor up there. He's a minister. We've got to stop that. Every single one of us is a minister. Every single one of us. Which means that every single one of us has to meet pressing needs. Ministry responds to need. Every single one of us need to respond to need. But look, ministry does not simply see needs, right? That's not all ministry does. Ministry responds, right? Ministry does not just do good things, correct? This is what we've talked about the past couple weeks. Because I can give, you know, all of you, like, oh, guys, I'm going to respond to your need. I'm going to give you all food today before you leave. Enough food to feed an army for six weeks. And the majority of the people in here will be like, I don't need this. This is all going to go bad before I eat it. It's not a need. Ministry responds to need. Our actions must meet needs. If our actions aren't meeting needs, uh, we've preached on this. I talked about this already. So if you want to go back and catch the last two-week sermon series, do that. But if our actions don't meet needs, we're missing something. And if our needs aren't being acted upon, if needs, if we're not acting to needs, we're missing something. They've got to go hand in hand. 
And if they don't, we cannot be fruitful. But y'all, this is where most sermons stop, right? So go out, meet pressing needs, and be a disciple of Jesus. Worship team comes up, plays a song, we all go on our way. But guys, that's not Christianity. Too many people are lied to and told that's Christianity. It's not, because you are look, overlooking, we are look, overlooking the most important aspect of being a Christian, and that is the root of the fruit. This is absolutely foundational to responding to needs. This is absolutely foundational to Christianity. And it should be absolutely foundational to our discipling. Unfortunately, it's not. This is why we don't need to worry about what our fruit looks like. I got in a lot of hot water once. I was a youth pastor and I was preaching a sermon and I was young and stupid, you know, so I was saying crazy things. I wasn't. I still stick by what I said. But one of the things that I said in this youth sermon is that as Christians, we don't need to know the Ten Commandments. And I got <laughs> destroyed. Now, if I were preaching that sermon today, I would probably explain that a little better than I did back then, right? Because then I wouldn't get destroyed. But, but it was a sermon about being led by the Spirit. And so my point was, if I'm walking in the Spirit, y'all, I don't need to have the Ten Commandments memorized. Now look, is it good to have the Ten Commandments memorized? I absolutely think so, right? The Word of God would not tell us, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you if it weren't good to do that. I think that's good, but, y'all, if I'm walking in the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit ever going to lead me to break one of the Ten Commandments? Never. If I'm walking by the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit ever going to lead me into anything other than the fruit of the Spirit? Never. You know, so many times, and this is our problem when we get our mind into these categories and boxes and all of this stuff, we think, and I've done this, y'all. I'm driving down 25 and somebody's driving in the left lane and I got to pass them over on the right side. That grinds my gears, right? I, I get frustrated about that. But, so, so, but I'm doing that and, and I feel myself losing my patience. And so what do I pray? I say, Holy Spirit, give me more patience, give me more patience, give me more patience. Bad prayer bad prayer. Holy Spirit, give me more of you. Jesus, help me to act like you. Jesus, I need more of you. The Holy Spirit is the fruit, y'all. It's him. And so when I pray for patience and God gives me patience, great. I got patience. What's that going to get me? It's not going to get me into heaven. Heaven's not full of people who are great, patient people, y'all. Heaven is full of people who walk in the Spirit. Full of people who believe that Jesus Christ is their everything. And they live that out. I don't have to pray for character traits. i got to pray for more of the Spirit. But the same thing happens with our fruit. God, help me to do something incredible for you. Help me to go on some crusade and be like Billy Graham and thousands of people. Wrong wrong prayer. Jesus, just help me to be obedient to you. Jesus, help me to stay plugged in. And this is why John 15 is my, just one of my favorite 
chapters in Scripture. I, I think I told you guys this a sermon series ago or so. Exodus 32, the binding on my old Bible is all worn out on Exodus 32 where Moses prays, God, show me your glory. That's, it's all worn, and like when you flip the Bible open, it flips straight to that. But if it doesn't flip you there, it flips you to John 15. Because those are places that, man, I have just lived in those verses. Just, I mean, opened my Bible and just spent months and hours just devouring and just soaking in those verses. But John 15 starts with this. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, yee, careful, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may be, bear more fruit. You have, are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, real quick, how many of you like being pruned? It's not fun, is it? Y'all, part of the reason I have lived in this passage is because I have had branches cut off, right? I have had people cut out of my life. I have had things taken away, stripped down. You know, they always say, like, you never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have, right? That's the cutesy little saying that Christians tell you. It's not cute when you're walking it, is it? But this is the promise, Christian. Every branch that is in Jesus will be pruned. God will cut away the things in your life that are making you unfruitful. But it's so that you can bear more fruit for his kingdom. Right? So that you can do more for his kingdom. Not, it's not willy-nilly. It's not, you know, because, oh, those people are bad for you, and it's not, and that's, it has nothing to do with you. It's so that you can be more fruitful. God has a purpose and a plan, even for the pain. But we've got to let him cut it away. Jesus finishes, Remain in me and I in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That last verse changed my life, y'all. That's another orange highlighted verse. And it's just that back half of John 5, or I'm sorry, John 15, 5. Just that back half. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I read this years ago, y'all. Years ago, I read this. Some of you, I think I've probably told some of you this before. But I read this years ago. And the Holy Spirit bam, blasted me. I said, Jeremy, do you actually believe that? Jeremy, do you actually live in a way that shows that you believe this? Do we? Because look, we can look at this passage, and this is what a lot of Christians like to do with passages that make us uncomfortable. We can look at it, and we can say, oh yeah, do you know hyperbole and, and metaphors, and Jesus giving us this symbolism and this imagery of a tree and the vine and the branches, Make it everything about what we actually need to make it about. Because here's the thing. The vine and the branches, symbolism, right? I used to teach English. Come on now. I know what I'm doing. Right? That's the symbolism. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's nothing symbolic about that. 
That is black and white Jesus. And y'all, I've got to be honest with you. I don't live like I believe that. Come on. I don't live my life like I believe that. Because when I balance the Gospel House checkbook, I pull out my calculator, and I, now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with using calculators, but do I live my life in a way that says, God, I am trusting you for everything. Every word I speak, every conversation I have, everything I do, God, I am ready for you to direct my steps. Is that how we live our lives? God, we look back, we look at the book of Acts, right? And, and I, I don't know if any of you are like me, but sometimes you read the book of Acts and you're like, man, God, why don't, you, why don't you move like that anymore? When we read the book of Acts, why don't you do those things anymore? Why don't you? And I think the answer is because we've taken on this self-help Christianity, this plucky Christianity of, oh, I can do it. I can do all things, right? And Christ gives me strength, but like, I can do it. Yay! That's not Christianity. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you know this, but there's a fantastic sermon. I would really encourage you. It's, it, takes, it, it takes some reading. I'm not going to lie to you. It's an old Jonathan Edwards sermon. You can find it online because it's public domain now. It's free. But it's, it's called, God is Most Glorified in Man's Dependence. That's the title of the sermon. So you can go home and look it up. Jonathan Edwards, God is Most Glorified in Man's Dependence. Y'all, it is fantastic. It's fantastic because it is all about this. We've talked about this a lot, but listen, y'all, Christianity, it's not complicated, right? But it is incredibly difficult because the reality is not a single one of us, if you, if you are sitting in this room right now and you are saying, well, I will do it, you're a liar, <laughs> Not a single one of us wants to give up this level of control to anyone. To anyone. I don't want to give my wife this much control. I love my wife more than any human on this planet. And I don't want to give her this much control over my life. Hey, Jana, I want you to tell me exactly where to be, when to be there, what to wear, who to talk to, what to say, right? Guys, that's what Jesus is asking for. And, and I'll tell you, I've had spurts where I've done this. Mornings where I've woken up and I've been like, Jesus, direct every step. But then there's always something in life that distracts you, isn't there? There's always something in life that just throws you off. And it, and it, gets, it gets you off where you were. But guys, when we look at the book of Acts and we have this thought, why doesn't Jesus move like this anymore? It's not God that moved, right? It's us. God doesn't move like that because I don't give him the same level of control that those early church leaders gave. I don't give Jesus absolutely everything. You've got Peter and Paul, and I mean, goodness gracious, we just got the men's Bible study just finished reading through the book of Acts. Like, holy cow, you know, God tells Paul, you are going to testify for me in Rome in front of the emperor. Deal. How do I get there, Lord? Well, you got to be arrested and stoned and beaten. And all right, Lord, here we go. And what's Paul do? You know, we love looking at the story of Paul. I, I, I think it was Charles Spurgeon once said that any, like any Christian, when you are walking in the calling of God, when God, God has called you to do something, you are invincible until you finish his task. 
right? And that's, that's Paul's proof, right? Because Paul's on a ship and the ship's stranded in the middle of the sea and the waves are like about to take him out. And Paul's like, hey guys, I got to testify in Rome, so we're good. Don't worry, right? And he's right. They get to shore. He's making firewood and fire so that he can warm his clothes and a viper comes out and bites his hand. Everybody's like, he's a dead man. He must have been a murderer because look, Paul's like, eh, I got to testify in Rome, guys. I'm good. Like, snake's not good. Right? We love looking at these things and be like, yeah, invincibility, God, give it to me. I want to pick up poisonous snakes and get bitten and other. But we miss, you got to be on mission. And you can't be on mission if you're not plugged into the root. We have got so many Christians running around with their own agenda telling God how they're going to serve him. And we never stop to ask the question, God, how do you want me to serve you? God, this Christmas, who do you want me to talk to? How do you want me to spend my Christmas Eve? How do you want me to spend my Christmas day? Right, we've started this tradition here at the Gospel House. You'll get the announcement from my lovely wife here in a couple minutes, but that, that we don't have service Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. We take both of those days off. And it's intentional because we want you to spend it with your family. And if that means spending it at a Christmas Eve service at another church, good, go. We're not scared of that, right? This isn't a competition. But we want you to spend it with your family. And this Christmas, we're even taking that back. We want you to spend it with who God wants you to spend it with. We've talked about this. I've asked this question every week now. We all have our family traditions. We all have, you know, our Christmas traditions. Christmas is probably, you know, one of the the most heavily influenced. Are you willing to let God mess up your tradition? What if God tells you this Christmas Eve, I want you to spend it in the hospital praying with people instead of at your family's house? I know the excuses. My family will hate me if I do that. My mom would never forgive me if I missed. But are you going to be obedient to your mother or are you going to be obedient to God? Hopefully your mother understands if you're obedient to God, right? But what if God asks? And even better, then what if God asks? Don't wait. Ask him, God, where do you want me to spend Christmas Eve? God, where do you want me to spend Christmas? God, who do you want me to bring with me Christmas Eve? Who do you want me to bring with me Christmas Day? Right? How can I be on mission for you, God? And then don't let it stop at Christmas. Let it continue right on. Because I guarantee you, if one person, one person in this room takes this to heart and you let God direct every step you take, you will change the world. I promise you. God promises you. It goes over my head, right? You will change the world. You will change your circle. And what will happen is you will change the people in your sphere of influence who will then change the people in their sphere of influence who will then do you see how this discipleship multiplies it's that ripple effect when you throw a rock into a pool of water 
and it just ripples. One person is all it takes. Now imagine what would happen if this entire room took this message to heart. Now look, I can't control you all, right? Just like you can't control me. So I have to make the decision today. I have to make the decision that I am going to live on mission. Every moment of every day, God directs my steps. I've told you, I don't know if I have ever fully chased the implications of this. But I really want to start. And so I'm going to pray right now. And I would ask you, while we're praying, we're going to close our eyes. We'll have everybody close our eyes. This isn't a sinner's prayer, don't worry. <laughs> You're freaking out right now. But what I want you to do, this is what I want you to do. This, this might be uncomfortable for some of you, but I really, I would love it if you would push out of your comfort zone just a little bit. If this is a prayer for you, I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you identify yourself or anything, but I just, just open your arms. If you want to do it indiscreetly so that nobody sees, just put them in your palm or in your lap, right? But put your palms up as a sign to God, God, I want to receive this. This, I want this. I want to receive this. So everybody close your eyes and we're going to pray this. Lord Jesus, Father, God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move on our hearts, Lord. God, this is hard. This is really, really hard. Because there are so many things of the flesh that fight against this kind of dependence. There are so many things the world is telling us. There are so many things that we're worried about what others will think or what others will do or, or even, God, what you'll ask of us if we give you this control. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move right now and that you would pacify all of those fears. God, that every wall that is standing up in opposition to you, that you would tear it down in the mighty name of Jesus. That you would move so powerfully, Lord, in our hearts right now, that we would trust you like never before. That we would give you complete control of our lives. Not just this Christmas season, God, but every moment from here on out. God, that we would make the decision that we would take your word as truth, that apart from you we can do nothing, and that we would plug ourselves completely and entirely into the true vine, you, Jesus Christ. Jesus, be our Lord. Jesus, be our Savior. And help us to completely surrender every area of our lives to you, God, so that we can be fruitful for your kingdom. Show us the people you want us to go to. Show us the things that you want us to do. Jesus, keep our eyes fixed on you. I pray that no distraction of the enemy would be able to turn our gaze to the left or to the right we would be fixed on you, Jesus.
that we would be completely obedient to you, Holy Spirit, whatever you're telling us to do. We love you, Father. Have your way in our lives. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough. Thank you.